Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. I'm trying to decide whether I, I have this award I'm getting on Sunday. I'm trying to decide whether I need to put more color in my hair. And I think the answer is yes. Do you not have a consultant to tell you? I need a consultant. Well, I have my mother. She consults on everything. Well, who, who decides whether to put, um, whether to put color in your hair or not? I do. Oh, but I mean, who puts the color in your hair? You do? Myself. Do you trust your mother's judgment? Oh, that's such a hard question. I don't... <laughs> On your hair, do you trust your mother's judgment? Yes. <laughs> okay. This conversation right here was so much fun. I'm so sorry we couldn't get together when we were in Nashville at the same time, but she had just come back from a trip. I've known Amy Curlin for decades and I knew her sister, Wendy, first because she was a journalist. And I worked in Nashville, well, for seven years for the ABC station, WKRN, uh, with a lot of great, great people and a lot of really good times. I did a lot of drinking in Nashville. I got sober in Nashville, got married in Nashville, graduated college in Nashville, um, you know, just just drove a cab there, worked at the exit in, mopping up, and it's just been a blast going down memory lane. And Amy Curlin is a verifiable rock in the in the country music and in just the songwriter. She should be in the Songwriters Hall of Fame for everything she did. And I'll tell you in a minute, if you don't know her name, probably not a household name, but she was certainly around household names. And our conversation is just a lesson, a, a, just like a walk through Nashville history, songwriting history, country music history, music history. It's just, it was so much fun. Um, we'll get to that. Amy Curlin. Every once in a while, I get a, a band or a musician come in and say, let's have a party. I'll just go ahead and talk all you want to. And, and I just want to say to them, if that's what you want to do, go play somewhere else. This is In Her Words, a podcast from manlisting.com, featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing because every woman deserves to be heard. Hey there, ho there, and welcome to In Her Words, the podcast. I'm Stuart Watson. This week, oh my God, this has got it. You're not supposed to pick favorites. This has got to be one of the best. My conversation via Zoom, I uh, wish it could have been in person, with Amy Curland. Amy Curlin created, out of nothing, by herself, uh, a place called the Bluebird, which became an institution. And the site of Live from the Bluebird in Nashville, Tennessee, Music City, USA. And her father was a part of country music and the Nashville sound and changing the Nashville sound and adding to it. And she has celebrated, uplifted, and tried to get respect for, equal respect for songwriters, not the performers, the writers, the people who come up with the music and the words, the real creatives behind the scenes, and did a lot for that at the Bluebird. And the Bluebird became an institution. It became just, just a church. Um, it became its own, if it wasn't the mother church, like the Ryman Auditorium, it was certainly a chapel in which absolute, the spirit of the place is just amazing. It became a very, very special place. She and I go into all of that, and, and she just schools me. Amy Curlin.
Where were you born? I was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Of course they bark right now. <laughs> They're not yeah. happy. Were you born in a hospital or at home? I was born in a hospital in Tulsa, Oklahoma. My father had a pretty short-term job at the University of Tulsa when he was finishing up his schooling. And so we were there just long enough for him to finish school and me to be born. What kind of job and what kind of schooling? My father was a, uh, at the time, he was a concert violinist. Uh, he had gone to Juilliard and then he had gone to uh, University of Tulsa for graduate school. Uh, and uh, he ended up, uh, and that how we ended up in Nashville is he ended up in the recording studios. It is my own prejudice that I do not associate Tulsa and concert violin. That's my own bigotry. And I cannot say what was going on there. It was a master's and his master's thesis was on acoustics. And I think mostly he needed a master's so that he could teach music somewhere. And I've never asked the question how we ended up there, but I'm asking my mother after, uh, after I talked to you today, was that the place who gave him money? Uh, you know, a lot of times you could get um, scholarships and that sort of thing if you would also play in the local orchestra. I thought people in Nashville did not play violins. They played fiddles, Amy. I thought if you played violin, you went to New York or maybe Chicago. Um, what is a violinist doing in Nashville, Tennessee in 1960-something, 50? 64. And if you listen to, say, a Patsy Cline record, which was a little bit before my father's time, or Andy Williams' song, or any number of people, there would be very sweet violin sounds behind it. There wouldn't be chunk a chunk a chunk of fiddle. There would be big choral things. That was the country politan sound. Oh, my word. Played on the same instrument, but it is a totally different technique. And how many violinists would be in a studio with your father? It wouldn't just be him. No. Uh, so he ended up making a business of it where he was the contractor. And so he would get a call from the arranger and the arranger would say, I need eight violinists, four violas, two cellos and a bass. Uh, so it uh, could be as many as that. And my father would hire all those people or it could be as few as four, two and one. Uh, but that uh, decision was generally made by the arranger. Uh, the arranger and not the record producer? Correct. The producer would choose the arranger to decide what the music should sound like, and that arranger would uh, both write the uh, charts and also decide what he needed. If he wanted it to be a great swelling, he stopped loving her today, which is a violin part, or something less. Um, what? are some tunes that to this day, you can put them on and you can hear your father on that record. Yeah, just about any of the country uh, records of that era, the uh, late 60s and all of the 70s. I'm looking over here at the wall, it is a word. So he was on, he stopped loving her today, the great George Jones classic. Oh my God. And uh, I'm Not Lisa, the Jesse Coulter hit, and uh, Bluer Than Blue for Michael Johnson, because my father and his section were so good that everybody decided to start coming to Nashville to do their violin parts, which is why Andy Williams would come in from Los Angeles to get his violin parts done here, you know. Uh, so it was uh, really a great time. B.J. Thomas, uh, Johnny Cash. Uh, so Patsy Cline? Well, Patsy Cline died in the mid-60s. The very first uh, session my father did was on a Patsy Cline record, but I don't know which one, but it was tracks that she had left after her death. So is your father big part or a small part of the reason Nashville 
was like no longer synonymous with just country. It was all different types of things. I think my father was a big part of that. I think that what they called the Nashville sound in the 70s was because my father came here and he started uh, poaching violinists from orchestras all over the country and making sure that he had the very best uh, crew he could. And he was, uh, he was a strong boss and people got there on time and they were ready to do the job and they stayed the whole time. And everybody uh, thought, I can put uh, violins on this music. It'll be easy because there's such a professional crew to do it. And so that, that's what happened. It's interesting when you talk about this work ethic. I heard Frank Zappa expected people to show up early to work for like a long time, not and to show up ready. So all these stories about drunk, cocaine-fueled people slopping it up in the studio, no. There were people there who were they demanded a work ethic. They demanded a professionalism. And it goes counter to the, well, we're just going to hang out at the studio all night, man, and see what comes up. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, that, you know, it makes for better records. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yes. Yeah. That's amazing. Did you meet any of these people um, by virtue of being the little girl running around? while your father was, did you ever, what did take your daughter to work day look like? No, my, father, my father did get to play uh, on the Johnny Cash show, which was a television show that was a big deal uh, in the mid seventies. And I would get to go and actually take my friends to see some of those tapings. And Johnny Cash was remarkable for the diversity of who he brought in to play, you know, Bob Dylan and James Taylor coming up and Arlo Guthrie and country artists. So I didn't necessarily meet the people, but I got to see them not only, I got to see them not only uh, in the performance, but also in rehearsal, which is the more interesting time. And we occasionally went to recording sessions, but, you know, recording is not done with everybody in the studio at the same time. The singer may have laid down her tracks two weeks ago, and then the violinists come at a different time and just hear it in the headphones. Uh, so, what yeah. Are you, what are your memories of Johnny Cash? What did you take away from seeing him work at a, at a close most people don't see him. They might see him on stage or whatever, but you're actually seeing him work behind the scenes. Well, keep in mind, I was about 13 or 14, so I wasn't discerning. But I mean, this guy, there was a reason he could host a television show is that he was glib. He was ready. He was interested in what was going on. And so, you know, his shows did not take hours and hours to make. He could pretty much just put together a television show, you know? I'm sure there were some rehearsals that I didn't see, uh, but, you know, for all of the reputations of musicians and performers as being loosey-goosey, the fact of the matter is nobody could make it to the top of their profession if they weren't really good at what they do, if they couldn't be there, uh, speak clearly at the, you know, and, and be loving and friendly to the people they were working with. What I've always loved, having lived 13 years in Nashville, is that um, country musicians, at least of a certain era, are like NASCAR drivers. They're extremely loyal to the fans. So during FanFest, do they still have FanFest? They now call it the CMA Fair. I think CMA Festival. It's same time of year, basically the same kind of thing. Uh, very much classed up. It's no longer at the fairgrounds, it's downtown. But yes, uh, all the artists go down there and get a booth and sign autographs for hours and days at a time. And they used to like stay there. Like I remember in the NASCAR circuit, Dale Jr. did stay there. Uh, they were like, these of your friends. There was none of this. 
uh, please respect my privacy or whatever. They had no privacy. <laughs> now, that also means if they're in the grocery store, people didn't like, people knew to kind of let, let them do their shopping. And, and I, you know, so what you're describing is an era that's kind of lost on a lot of people. Like Nashville is a hugely different place than when I left 30 years ago, 25 years ago, let alone 50, 60 years ago. It was, it was really, it was not that big of a place. Like everybody kind of knew everybody. And also fans presumed a familiarity with these people. There was no, there was not like a real boundary. Between, you, you didn't need bouncers. You didn't need security or a posse. I mean, the fans respected these people enormously. Yeah, uh, I don't know about fans, but certainly these people's neighbors, the people they're in the grocery store with, their children would be at the same schools. You know, they would be going to the PTA meetings. And so they had to treat them as uh, people, as neighbors, as equals. Uh, I'm not sure that, uh, well, I think Keith Urban can go to a Starbucks in Nashville today and be left alone if he chooses the right Starbucks. Not Interesting. where the uh, tourists are hanging out. I think he's safe in his own Kroger. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to disclose which Starbucks that is, Amy Cronin. <laughs> We're going to respect, there's going to be respect, Keith Urban. But I think there's also a kind of um, respect for the fans. Like this goes along with the territory. And now in a day and age of, can I get a selfie? You know, if you're at a funeral or, or if you're at church on Sunday, can I get a selfie? Some people just have no sense of boundaries or propriety anymore. But at the time, you know, it was like, People understood that. And so there was kind of a, there was a different relationship, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But yeah. I think, uh, and I think more so back then, you know, the fact that George Jones did Christmas lights at his house and wanted people to come out and see, not indoor, but outdoor Christmas lights or little Jimmy Dickens. Everybody knows where everybody lives. And it wasn't safe, uh, unsafe. Nobody was trying to break into the house. Uh, more recently, I know that there are some artists that have had to move because they somebody drove by on a tour of the star's home, and then they go back later and knock on the door and say, is, you know, so-and-so here? Uh, that has, says nothing about what's going on uh, as far as locals in Nashville go, but maybe the fact that Nashville has done this terrible thing to try to turn itself into the Disneyland Las Vegas of the world and make a lot of money on uh, too much tourism, the wrong kind of tourism. Now you've got me. Well, I was, you know, as you know, I was there last weekend, weekend before last. And my impression is uh, drunk girls in cowboy boots on bachelorette parties. It has become the bachelorette capital of the U.S., and they're all crammed into like lower broad. Yes, although during the day they, uh, for good or for bad, they have spread out and they know about 12 South and they know about Hillsborough Village, and they do. They know about the Green Hills Mall to a certain extent. So they, they Amy, do. will you please tell them to stay away from the Pancake Pantry? It's that's irritating me. The length of that line at the Pancake Pantry. <laughs> That's personally irritating to me. I want you to tell them there should be like a seniority kind of thing for how long you've lived in Nashville to be able to go into the pancake pantry. You think we could just be so unpleasant to them? Tourists go home, you know, Yankees go home. That would be yeah. kind of I don't think so. I think it's mainly the whole of like Southern California that's picked up and sort of moved with all the traffic to go with it. That's the main thing. Um, so did you obviously inherit a love of music from your father? How did your father transmit this love of music to you? Oh, I actually think that my love of music came through my mother. Ah, how? My mother loved Broadway show tunes. She loved Broadway shows. She grew up in New York and she went to all the shows and 
we that's we played on the stereo at home was you know West Side Story and Oklahoma and Kiss Me Kate and all of those shows and uh, we sang them in the car and we went to see them if we were in New York City or if uh, once we moved to Nashville if they came touring down here and uh, the other thing I really don't want to um, fool you into thinking that I have all that sophisticated love of music because what I really liked was guys who played guitar <laughs> <laughs> and sitting up in bars all night with them. So when I was dating a, a guitar player and hanging out with all of his friends at the rehearsals for shows or at shows or in the bars after the shows, uh, and I wanted to be in the restaurant business. I went to college thinking I wanted to be a lawyer and thank God I was disabused of that notion. And I thought I wanted to open a restaurant and he and all his friends said, put in uh, a stage and we'll come play there. And other than that, I really had no plan or no good thinking about it. But the one thing I had was an ear for lyrics because of my mother and the show tunes. And country music is not that different than Rodgers and Hammerstein. The uh, sound of it may be different, but the content is a story that is well spelled out with cleverness in the use of language. Also and, telling stories. Oh. And telling stories in an amusing way, you know? All my exes live in Texas. Or uh, Cole Porter, uh, where is the life that later I led? Which is same, very same song. It's about, I used to have a girl, girlfriends in Texas or in Cole Porter and Kiss Me Kate, I used to have girlfriends all over Italy. <laughs> exes. Rich territory, <laughs> richer than the long-term marriage <laughs> by far. <laughs> yes, breakups far, well, they're far more relatable than yeah. good marriages, right? Not many, not many middle-aged accountants in country songs. Did you perform in high school musicals? No, I did not. I am not a singer. I am not one bit musical. And so I'm really grateful that I got, a, I, I love music, that I got a chance to participate in music as a career and help other people. Did you try to write lyrics at all? Never. Not for any of these boyfriends? You didn't feed them some material? But not my thing. Or at least inspire a song by breaking up with them fantastically by like keying their car or smashing their windshield with a nine iron? Stuart, I am a, a uh, lover, not a fighter. I, <laughs> I am an enabler, not, not a fighter. Not a confrontational person. Um, so I'll free shot on goal. How did you find your way into the music industry? How did you, how did you become someone more than someone on the bar stool looking at the dude playing guitar? Okay, so I graduated from college. I'd come home. Where'd you go to college? Went to Washington University in Washington, D.C. GWU. GWU, absolutely. So I came home and I got jobs in restaurants and I had some money that my grandmother had left me. And I said, I'm going to, I mean, the stupidity, the naiveness of a 26 year old. I said, I'm going to open a bar, I'm going to open a restaurant. And I had an ex-boyfriend, because it's always good to have an ex-boyfriend, who was a, a restaurant cook. And he had a girl, a current girlfriend who was a restaurant cook. And I had another friend who was a server, an excellent waitress. And between the four of us, we developed a menu. I found a place to rent. And I got some of those musicians to come over and paint the walls and put in the stage. And next thing you know, June 3rd, 1982, I'm unlocking the door and letting people come in to hear a band that that original boyfriend 
was playing in. And uh, you know, what do you know? People came. People, uh, now, he, they, that band put up posters. People knew about it somehow or other. Everybody invited their friends. And we had a full house. Yeah. So what was the concept? Because, like, for instance, I worked at the Exit Inn. The Exit Inn was open at the time, and it had been serving awful food. Um, it, was, it, was, it was bad bar food. It wasn't even good bar food. Um, you could have gone up the street and gotten a waxy burger or gone to Rotiers, but instead you're seeing these bad chicken fingers at the Exit Inn at that, during that era. They, I'm, I'm not slandering the Exit Inn because it's still in business. What was your concept versus what it be, what it sort of evolved into? Now, you give me way too much credit to think I had a concept. <laughs> but I did have, I wanted to serve, because I had originally wanted to be in the restaurant business, I wanted to serve a nice lunch in Green Hills. Nashville did not have a lot of good restaurants. Uh, it had a lot of chains. And I wanted to serve a nice lunch. So I put floral tablecloths on the tables and we made uh, chicken salad and stuffed it into tomatoes and crab louis and I actually had a guy who was a pastry chef and he came over and he made the desserts and we had a very nice and delicious lunch business and then at two o'clock when everybody had left from lunch we took the tablecloths off the tables. We put the big rock and roll speakers on stands. And then by six o'clock, we reopened as a bar until about nine o'clock and then live music. And there was no direction for the music. It was just, you know, if you wanted to play there, country, jazz, Christian, rock and roll, blues, just play there. But I was paying attention because people were complaining. And the number, number one thing they were complaining about is cigarette smoke. Thank God nobody has to deal with that anymore. But the number two thing was it's too loud. Mm. And I hired a guy who had booked music at the Exit Inn where you once worked named Hugh Bennett. Oh, yeah. And Hugh helped me book the music. And he was in for all this diversity and all the people he knew in the music business. But he booked something called Writer's Night in August or July of that first year. And I came in for the show and everybody was listening. They were on the edge of their seats listening to the music. It was not too loud. It was perfect. And everybody loved it. And then at the end of the night, I checked to see how we had done, you know, we bring the cash register out and check the till, most money we'd ever made. I'm like, writer's nights, we're doing more of those. And over the next year or so, started to eliminate anything other than songwriters shows, uh, not necessarily that they were acoustic, because a lot of the songwriters wanted to play with bands. But I didn't need to keep doing all this diverse music. We, we stuck with blues on Monday night. We had a good relationship with a couple of the jazz bands. But it cut out all the, you know, the rock and roll uh, and all that. It was songwriter music. And it was like, oh, I have found my uh, place. I have developed the thing that this room is meant for. I have a crush that I have to bring up with you right now. Um, it's not Taylor Swift. Uh, Marshall Chapman. Oh, yeah. God, yeah. she's wonderful. Perfect example. There was Marshall Chapman who had had a medium-sized rock and roll career. She went to Vanderbilt and out of Nashville, but a great songwriter. And she started coming in and playing uh, with her band which was always fun, but it wasn't too much longer after that, that we went almost exclusively acoustic. And she was one of the people who was very into that. And that worked out so well. Yeah. Did you make, did you make anybody mad when you went all acoustic? Were there some people who were like, Oh, Amy, come on. Where's your rock and roll heart? 
I don't remember that, but I'll tell you how it came about. So we were doing a lot of writer's nights because they were good. And then one Sunday night, Don Schlitz, who had written The Gambler, who's mm -hmm. been, and Fred Knobloch, who later wrote If My Heart Had Wings for Faith Hill, came in. They'd been drinking elsewhere, and they came in. And they, we sat at the end of the bar, and they said, we think that we want to play in the middle of the room, you know, and let the audience sit around us and we'll call it in the round and it'll be like a guitar pull in your living room. And uh, the next morning I woke up and I remembered that. I don't know if they did because we were all drinking pretty good. <laughs> Somebody wrote it down or remembered it. And I got up and I called and I said, you serious about that? And about three or four weeks later, I booked them and we figured out how to set it up in that setting and it was magic it was absolute magic um and some of the songwriters they played with uh don and fred and tom schuyler and paul Armstreet. tom schuyler said i never want to play any other way than this again um and uh, i like to say i didn't invent uh sitting in a circle uh playing music but i invented charging money to see it <laughs> And they did that. They played that way for about a year and a half, two years, just them. And everybody else was still playing on stage. And then a woman named Patricia Walker came to see me and she said, no, this isn't right. I want to set this up where a group of women can do it. I have Pam Tillis and Ashley Cleveland and Karen Staley. We'll call it Women in the Round. And so they started doing it and they were, they were their own phenomenon. People were coming from everywhere to see this. Don and Fred and them, uh, Janice Ian came. She moved to Nashville, first place she came. Uh, people from, came to see the woman in the round. And then the next one, your crush, Marshall Chapman called up and she said, I want to do this. And so she put together a co-ed group and then Katie Bar the door. Uh, everybody wanted to play in the round. So whether there were people complaining that they didn't get to do it their way with a band, was not nearly as important as how many people wanted to play in that format. They love that in the round format and audiences love it. it it's great. The, the songwriters are in a circle in the middle of the room and they put their drink on the customer's table right behind them. And I've seen people turn around and say, hey, can I have one of those French fries? You know, has anybody got anything I can eat? And somebody hand them a sandwich. It's so intimate. It's like it's like being backstage at the Opry, you know, it, and that's for the audience. I don't, the musician's fine, but for an audience member to suddenly feel like, oh, I am actually in here while these people are making up songs, cracking jokes, uh, spontaneously adding harmonies, uh, spontaneously adding uh, guitar solos. Uh, that you're no longer just an audience member, you are getting to participate in creativity. Hi, I'm Dr. Kim, the parentologist. As a wife, mom, therapist, and all-around juggler like most of you, I lead a hectic life, and sometimes that means indulging in foods on the go that my stomach doesn't always agree with. Thankfully, Pepto-Bismol provides me fast and effective relief for all kinds of upset stomachs. Having a little too many guilty pleasures at a family barbecue or birthday celebration may lead to indigestion or heartburn, so I always keep Pepto on hand to get fast relief when I need it the most. Pepto-Bismol. Use as directed and keep out of reach of children. There's a couple of things going on. On the one hand, I, I wasn't aware at the time when I saw Mississippi Muddy Waters at the exit in that I was witnessing history. And when I saw Lowell George play with Little Feet, or when I saw Harry Chapin play at Vanderbilt, that you don't realize, you know, Jim Croce was around that era, that, and Patsy Cline, that you think people are gonna live forever. You think they're gonna get old. Like who knew Merle Watson was gonna die before, long before Doc Watson? And, and he grieved mightily, you know, all would miss the son he didn't have until the day he died. And so there's this sense of not only that you're at an event, it's a special event. There's something fundamentally different about that experience than shelling out 
just a ton of money to like go see the Rolling Stones or U2, you know, or the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I mean, all of which they put on a great show, but the, the intimacy and, and the porousness of the stage that, that you know, that the sense that you're at not so much a concert as an event, like, almost like a happening, like they had in the 60s, you know? I agree. And I'll go, I'll spend the money to go see the Rolling Stones and I love it, but it's, it's not the, that in the round intimacy that you're talking about. I don't know if you know the name, The Evening Muse in Charlotte. Um, my friend Joe Kuhlman runs it. Uh, he has a definite ear and he tuned that room and they might have 60, I think fits the less than a hundred people in that room. Um, you know, uh, Mary Gaucher, there's another person I respect hugely. She, she would play a place like that. And Mary Gaucher is now a Nashvilleian. And also sh she did me a solid and didn't know me from Adam. Like um, I said, I'm making a film about my adoption. And she said, you can use my music. And then I recorded her on video playing the music. And she said, if you want a, a copy of that, I can get you a pristine copy of it. And it just blew my mind. But you talk about that for a minute, that generosity of spirit that Mary Gaucher did for me that I mean, that's like people did things for one another. Sure, man, I'll hook you up. Sure. You know, there's this like give and take that's part of a community. It's not like, well, see my lawyers and see my people and blah, blah, blah. It was a relationship kind of a thing. I think one of the things that Bluebird is really important for is that we do not just put on shows of the hit makers. We also have... Uh, shows for the people who just got off the bus or just got out of their car coming to Nashville. And so we, we are the, the first door sometimes that they come through. And one of the things I love is that the guy who's been here a month is glad to see the brand new guy get here because then they're not the newest one. And they will share where else they should go play, where to buy their guitar strings, uh, you know, they'll invite them over for Thanksgiving dinner. They will uh, offer to play on their song. And then the better known songwriters will be happy to maybe not listen to a song, but offer advice. I have always found that Nashville is a place that from that ladder of people at the top and the bottom, there's a lot of reaching down and up to help each other up. It's really amazing, and I think it still goes on, although in some ways it's been commercialized a little bit because uh, a lot of songwriters now have their own songwriting classes and that sort of thing. But uh, the other generosity that's so true in Nashville is how many people uh, do benefits for uh, everything. For everything from nonprofits to somebody who uh, wrecked their car or has cancer. I mean, everybody gets out and plays for free so that they can put money in the pocket of somebody who needs it. And that is still going on. And I guess a third kind of generosity would be the kind that is loyalty so that uh, Garth Brooks still shows up and plays shows for me at the Bluebird. I mean, usually without telling anybody and usually a benefit. Uh, but he is not the only one. Vince Gill, who is famous for his generosity. You know, he, you know if, if somebody canceled a show for tonight, uh, wouldn't be me, Erica does it now, but Vince might be my first call. Hey, Vince, somebody's canceled on me. You want to come down and do a show? And he doesn't live that far away. And if he doesn't have anything else going on, he might very well do it. I've seen him do it. Uh, and other people like that. So there is that generosity that is part of community that encourages the new person and continues to help the people who have been here a while feel like they're part of something bigger. Um, I don't presume for you to know this, but why, why would a Vince Guild 
do that? Like, why would he come down at the last minute and do it? <laughs> Maybe that says a lot about me. It's like, I'd be like, what's in this for me? Like, I, you know, I'm having dinner and watching Netflix. Why do I want to, why, why would he, like, he doesn't need to do that. Why, why does he do that? <laughs> Stuart, you forget why all these people went into business, why they came into the music business. They want to play for an audience. They're going to, Dinskill may or may not be sitting home watching Netflix, but I guarantee you, even if he is, he's got a guitar in his hand and he's noodling, right? He loves to play guitar. He loves to sing. He likes to write songs. And so to have an opportunity to say, oh, I wasn't really doing anything tonight. I get to go down and play in front of a little audience and crack jokes. People love to do that. I mean, why am I on your... Uh, interview show because I love to tell this story. I mean, part of it is I love you, but part of it is I was hoping that was it, Amy. <laughs> part of it is I get joy out of telling the Bluebird story, and Vince Gill, and Garth Brooks, and Trisha Yearwood, and Kim Ritchie, all these people, and Mary Gaucher, she could play be playing larger venues. Now I will say also about the Bluebird, you could be a three hundred seat venue that where somebody's going to make a lot of money but there's going to be people in the back playing pool or talking or whatever. Or you could come to the Bluebird where we don't have a dressing room. We don't have a, a fruit basket. We barely give you a free drink, but people are going to be riveted by your music. I promise you, performers want to be listened to. It's not comfortable for them to play at a big crowd if the crowd's not listening. And it means everything to be heard. When to pick a different genre, when I would go to the Bluegrass Inn, we would drink beer and raise hell. Um, when we would go to the Station Inn and start turning just to talk to the person next to you, we would be shushed because people were staring at the 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 fingerings of the of the fret. They were they would be going to school they would be going to school on these performances. And I was like, you people are annoying. I just want to be a drunken frat boy. And, but there's something to that, that this is a real, like you, you can't bring your B game. If you're going to go in front of this audience, you're also there. You're, you're the sort of the artist artist. You're the performer's performer when you're doing that kind of thing. And can I say that the silliest bachelorette group in the world, if you can get them to shut up and listen for even five minutes, will get caught up in the music. And then you won't have to keep them shut up because they will be excited about what they're hearing, which is lovely. I'm sure that's true for you. You went to the station and you wished you could eat those peanuts and, you know, stomp and tell your buddy jokes and suddenly you're caught up in music. And that is, I mean, that is just the power of the arts, right? If you'll give them a chance, you will get sucked right in. And I can't tell you how many people would tell me at the end of a Bluebird show, I never liked country music. I didn't come here. I came here to get over my own objections because I don't like country music. And suddenly I like country music. I'm going to go right out and buy these things because they never really listened in our parlance, contempt prior to investigation. Right. And uh, I've also been shushed in a Dave Brubeck concert. So it, it could just be that I was just generally a loud, drunken frat boy <laughs> who didn't appreciate the kind of music I was exposed to. I have shushed people at a Bruce Springsteen concert. Not necessarily make you popular, but I'm like, I just spent a lot of money for this. I'd like to hear what's going on. So what you're saying is the performers and the audiences sort of dictated to you, we want this to be a different experience than the damn Ramada Inn band. Well, you know, so our motto is actually shh. We've <laughs> famous for shushing people, but I will tell you that I did not come up with that. The audience was doing it. You know, you'd be in a show, everybody would be listening, and one table would start to talk, and the audience members would turn around and shush the other table. You know, nowadays we ask the servers to do it. I don't want any fistfights. 
But uh, I love that. The, the audience made that decision. Every once in a while, I get a, a band or a musician come in and say, let's have a party. I'll just go ahead and talk all you want to. And, and I just want to say to them, if that's what you want to do, go play somewhere else. There was a TV show live at Bluebird, right? Yes. It was Turner uh, South and where else? You can catch a few of those episodes on, on YouTube. I, um, I wish it had, I mean, it lasted six years uh, and it was in Charlotte. So uh, get it out there and it was wonderful. I got a chance to present uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of songwriters in that setting where they do this wonderful thing that we haven't even talked about is not only do they sing the songs, but they tell the stories behind the songs. They crack jokes. So it's not just here's a song about my ex-girlfriend, but here's a song that happened after I brought her home this and she didn't like it. And I called her mother and a bit, all of that. And then you can hear how that became a song. And sometimes the other writers tease them. I mean, it's just marvelous. And we wanted to capture that in that TV show. Um, did people record ever record live music and put it on albums from the Bluebird? I'm sure they did some cuts, right? Yeah, Steve Forbert made a live album in there and some other people. And we did a our own series called Live from the Bluebird Cafe and did about uh, eight or ten artists. And the biggest one of those is we recorded a show with Guy Clark, Towns Van Zandt, and Steve Earle uh, that uh, has sold, I don't know, tens of thousands of copies, which is really great. But it wasn't like we turned the place into a recording studio. We just recorded what actually happened. But again, we didn't have to fight with people about being quiet to listen. We didn't even have to make much of an announcement about that because people were going to listen anyway. What happened during COVID and what, where are you now? They closed down from March 2020 until July 2021. Uh, during that time period, uh, of course, they had to lay off most of the staff, but they made a very big effort to uh, keep the bluebird in front of people's faces. So they did some shows in empty rooms and put them on uh, you know, those various platforms, stage it and that sort of thing. And then uh, in July, 2021, reopened with a limited number of people in the room. They probably went down a third and um, didn't do in the round for a while because it was felt that was too intimate. Uh, and now they are finally, maybe over the last six months, back up to full capacity. And you, forgive me, forgive my ignorance, you you sold your interest or what, what happened? You stepped back from the day-to-day -day running, right? That is correct. So uh, in 2007, I'm driving around thinking, I love the music business. I want to keep doing, I want this place to stay open forever, but I cannot bear going in and fixing the grease lines and dealing with waitresses and dealing with cooks that don't show up, et cetera, et cetera. And a voice from on high said, give it to the Songwriters Association. Because I didn't want to sell it. I didn't want to sell it to Gaylord or somebody like that or an artist, maybe an artist. I didn't want to sell it to just somebody who would realize there's a lot more money in a karaoke bar or a sports bar than there is in a live music venue. And I called my friend who had worked for me at the Bluebird for many years and said, um, what do you think about me giving it to the Songwriters Association? And she said, well, that could work. And very gently over the next year, we worked that out. Now, they wouldn't let me give it to them. They ended up paying me something. So I cannot say that I'm the great philanthropist. But uh, I did, in fact, make a, a deal that made me feel good, made them feel good, and made it possible for them 
to uh, run it. So since 2008, the Bluebird is being run by the Nashville Songwriters Association International, which means the songwriters own the Bluebird. Uh, it's run by Erica Willem Nichols, and I am on the board of directors. And so they make money, but they're a nonprofit, right? That's correct. So, and they, it also means you can't run it into the ground. You gotta, you still gotta make, you still gotta make a profit margin. Um, but it's not strictly like a cultural amenity where you're gonna lose a bunch of money. You can't afford to lose a bunch of money. Well, one of the things I really hoped was that the infrastructure that the Songwriters Association had would. Uh, be something we could share, you know, payroll and insurance and HR. It really didn't work out that way, but it was a good concept. Uh, but the other thing I thought was that they, and particularly Erica, uh, had some business chops that I didn't have, that she could find a way to expand the, the reach of what we were doing. And I had done really well with that. I mean, we had the television show, we had a touring show, uh, we had a lot going on, but she has really expanded that. She takes shows, Bluebird shows, to London, other places in Europe. She has shows around the country. She has sponsorships, uh, endorsements, in ways that, in fact, the place is doing really well, much better than I ever did with it. So I'm um, and the Nashville TV show. Merch? Merch is huge. Merch so is huge. That's huge, and that's great because that's been still the same little place it's always been, 90 seats. But if you can sell tens of thousands of dollars worth of merchandise every year, it doesn't, doesn't matter how many seats you've got. Right. You said you're getting an award this week. What, what's the award? The Nashville Entrepreneurs Center is inducting me into their Hall of Fame. Love it. Yes, I'm very pleased. That'll be Monday night, week from today. I stopped by there when I was there in town because I would love to network and that kind of thing. It's very impressive. It is really something what they're doing. I wasn't aware of the Hall of Fame, but now that I'm going in it, it seems like a really big deal. So you're a um, part of Nashville music history. Thank you. How's Thank that feel? It's pretty good. It feels pretty good. You know, uh, you know, my family moved here in 1964, and uh, my parents and my brother and sister, I think between the five of us, we have made a big impression on this city. And I love that. You know, we didn't just come down here and do nothing. My father changed the music business. My mother was very political and got issues on the table that nobody else was talking about. My sister has been, she was a journalist for a while and now she is doing a lot of nonprofit work. So she has made a difference. And my brother is a sound man in the film industry. And now, and he's done all the Coen brothers movies and many other big movies you would have heard of. And now he's the head of the Tennessee uh, technical union uh, and so we're still running around doing good for our city. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, if you and I were struck by lightning today and the only thing that survived was this little bit of digital audio, what is your legacy? I hope my legacy is that I helped bringing, bring songwriters to the forefront and that that what they do is considered an art of its own they're not just behind the artist but what they do is as is its own freestanding art form which indeed it is i mean there's Paid attention. Probably never, nobody ever thought about the fact that Bob Dylan wrote songs. They just thought he was Bob Dylan, an artist, and now people really think about they wrote the songs. The day uh, Bob Dylan was given the Nobel Prize, um, uh, Mary Gaucher texted me, and you know, he covered one of her songs. And she just like lost her mind. She was she was over the moon. 
she yeah. was so she was so pleased and it's this whole notion of participating in the in another human being's excellence it's the notion of we share this this is not they got mine or how come i'll never get the, this is a notion of we're, we're having this shared experience this empathy really great these mirror cells that we have do you want to say anything political we got an election coming up free shot on goal you're in tennessee oh my god really do you want to well sure i uh, actually you know one of the things i do in my retirement is I help people who have lost their right to vote because they have a felony on their record get their voting rights back. Because I believe that the more voters we have in this country, the better off we will be. And it is a long, slow process. And Tennessee is very um, difficult to get your voting rights back. It's one of the worst in the country. I hope that every woman that ever existed votes this time and makes it clear that our bodies, ourselves, we make the choices. And uh, that's all I have to say about that. Well, that's wonderful. I appreciate that. Do you believe like I do, if I can control all my money through this cell phone that I'm holding in my hand, that we can find a way to have every person who is a citizen be able to vote, vote only once, and have very little question about it. If we have the technology to manage our money like this, all of our money, then why can't we have some sort of confidence in the technology that casts and collects votes? One and only one vote for each and every American citizen who cares to vote. Absolutely, Stuart. It is absurd what they put somebody through who wants to get their voting rights back. They, a, a person can't do it by themselves. I, I help them. But what they are doing is they're asking me to get information from the state of Tennessee and return it to the state of Tennessee. Why would I need to do that? They have it. And not only that, they have no way to do it computerized. It has to be handwritten. And every bit of it has to be done. If you have 10 felonies, 10 pieces of paper. It takes months and months. And it's absurd. If, if I can have a thought that I want to get a chapstick through Amazon, and it's going to show up three hours from now, <laughs> nothing bad is going to happen along the way. Yes. And I get it that Private businesses put a lot of money into being able to do business, and the state doesn't have money like that. But, you know, the fact that we lose track of foster children all the time is criminal, and that we should be spending our money on taking care of those things. Well, on the voting issue, we have one minute, and I'll just say this. Um, it's strictly a lack of will. It's, they don't want to know. They don't want they don't want to know. There's an entire industry around not wanting to know and wanting to create doubt. And so you have to have a sloppy system in order to create doubt. Um, we could do this. We could talk about this for days. Amen. Amen. Well, I'll do something about it. I get people their voting rights back. Good for you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for what you have done for music for Nashville, for songwriters, for the arts, for Tennessee, and for the United States of America and the world. Amy Curlin, thank you for making time for me. Thank you, Stuart. My pleasure. I loved it. So Amy Curlin will be inducted into the Nashville Entrepreneurial Center's Hall of Fame next week. So this podcast drops on Thursday, October 20th, 2022, and she'll be inducted into it next week. Talk about an entrepreneur. Way beyond that. She made the artist possible. She really did. And I, did you feel it? Did you not feel it? That this was just history. This is one for the history books. Thank you, Amy Kerwin.
In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Katherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Look for man listening. One word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who has supported Man Listening, the In Her Words podcast, and me personally from the very beginning. Thanks so much. Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much. <laughs>